morning. Everybody wants to know about bullying, which is great, judging by the numbers that came along this morning. Uh, you're all very welcome to our first top tips of 2017. If it wasn't too late in the year, I'd wish you all a happy new year, but it's the middle of February. Um, to those of you who've been with us before, you know that after each top tips, we send out a survey monkey. Um, and we asked people what they'd like us to cover in one of our future sessions. And bullying and harassment is something that has come up time and time again. Um, for those of you who've been with us before, you'll also know that it isn't our practice to cover sections of legislation or to cover the cradle to grave of what the law is on a particular topic. Um, what our practice is to give you a feel for the kind of issues that arise and some practical tips around how to deal with those issues and in particular the issues that we come across on a daily basis there are 18 there are 19 of us in the team welcome sarah we had somebody join us last week very welcome sarah's there with her hand up um so we we're, we think we're a fairly good measure of the types of things that become issues for uh, employers and hr practitioners alike um so this morning, Avril's going to take you through what is bullying, what is harassment, actually, because they're difficult enough to get your head around what falls within the definition of bullying and what falls within the definition of harassment, and they're not the same thing. And Avril's also going to take you through what you're supposed to do when you're presented with a complaint of bullying or a complaint of harassment or a complaint of both, because invariably they're lumped in together. Um, and... The answer to that is actually pretty easy because there are some good codes of practice which set out how you should deal with complaints. So Avril's going to focus in particular on how you investigate complaints because that's where we see issues. And if you've been a fly on the wall of the employment team's floor uh, in the warehouse out the back for the last month, you'd have heard lots of conversations and discussions and friendly arguments about what exactly best practice is. And one of the things that's very clear is that there's no right or wrong answer. Um, so we're gonna give you a flavor of, and Avril's gonna give you a flavor in particular of how to do a good investigation, but there isn't one size fits all because what you're dealing with here is something that's very emotional and something which involves human beings. And you have to bear that in mind all of the time, particularly when you're dealing with complaints of bullying and harassment. And in an ideal world, when an investigation is done and there's an outcome, and the outcome results in some form of action, that'll be the end of it. Um, but unfortunately, none of us live in an ideal world. Uh, so Orla's going to talk to us this morning about what happens if it all goes pear-shaped. Um, something we try and avoid, but it's something which is inevitable uh, every now and then. Um, Orla's going to take you through where complaints around bullying and harassment end up, how they end up there, and what the possible outcomes are. And one of the best ways to do that, and it's not something we generally do at the top tips, but one of the best ways to actually take you through some examples is to talk to you about a couple of the more recent cases, um, because they're good indicators of how these claims pan out um, when they become contentious, and particularly when they become contentious before a third party. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand you over to Avril. Um, there you go. I'm clicker. morning. So as Melanie said, I'm going to look at the codes of practice on and the definitions of bullying and harassment. And I'll also look at 
the procedures that you should ideally be using to investigate complaints of bullying and harassment. Orla gets the juicy part, she gets to look at the case law, so bear with me while I look at the more technical side of things. Um, but first of all, a recent study that was done found that Ireland was seventh on the list of countries with the most workplace bullying, and with almost 6% of workers claiming that they had experienced it at some point, and sexual harassment was at just over 1%. And apart from the obvious impact that bullying and harassment can have on the complainant, it can also have a major impact on you as employers, who have to deal with the human resources and commercial fallout in terms of managing complaints and grievances, um, in terms of dealing with a loss of productivity, and in some cases then having to defend time-consuming and costly litigation. And what we might have traditionally understood as bullying, I think, has changed quite dramatically with the arrival of the digital world, um, with more employees than ever now linking in, Snapchatting, and using Facebook, which can cross over into the workplace. Now, I don't propose to get into cyberbullying today, but there are lots of different ways that organizations try to tackle problems of, of bullying and harassment. They range from simply ignoring the issue until it turns into an industrial relations dispute to sticking to well thought out practices and procedures um, to deal with the issue before it develops into a serious conflict. And that's obviously what we're here to talk about today. There's no one piece of, of um, legislation dealing with bullying and harassment or dealing with complaints of bullying and harassment. But as Melanie said, there are three codes of practice on the topic, and I'll look at those in a minute. Remember that bullying and harassment applies to conduct inside or outside the workplace, so it can apply to social work events, and it applies to conduct by or to contractors and agency workers, as well as strict employees. In reality, employees typically lump in bully complaints of bullying and harassment together, regardless of what their complaint actually is, but they're not the same thing. And for you to be able to investigate complaints properly, you need to be able to identify when something amounts to bullying or harassment or sexual harassment. So we'll take a look at the definitions. Under the Safety, Health and Welfare Work Act, you have a duty to provide your employees with a safe place of work. And that includes a workplace free from bullying. Now, there's no legal definition of bullying, but employers in Ireland tend to follow the Health and Safety Authority's definition, which sees bullying as repeated inappropriate behaviour, direct or indirect, whether verbal, physical or otherwise, which could reasonably be regarded as, as undermining the individual's right to dignity at work. An isolated incident, which might be an affront to dignity at work, as a once-off incident is not considered bullying. Orla will take you through some cases which give examples of bullying, but the Health and Safety Authority does helpfully give us some examples of, of what it sees as bullying, and they include verbal abuse or insults, aggression, uh, excluding somebody with negative consequences, undermining or intimidating behaviour, humiliating somebody in private or in public, and um, pestering or spying on someone, excessively monitoring someone, withholding work information, or, or blaming somebody for things beyond their control. There can sometimes be a fine line between strong management and bullying. So a manager might use blunt language or inappropriate banter, but that's not going to necessarily amount to bullying. The important thing is that it's repeated. So a once-off incident of a manager losing the head probably isn't going to amount to bullying. It has to be inappropriate, 
and it has to be undermining of the, the dignity of the person. The test for bullying is an objective one. So what might amount to bullying for a very sensitive employee might not mean bullying for a more robust employee. And that's quite a high threshold to meet. That's quite a tough test. Harassment, on the other hand, is governed by the employment equality legislation, and it's based on a person um, being a member of one of the nine discriminatory grounds. And they are civil status, family status, sexual orientation, religious belief, or none, age, disability, gender, race, or membership of the traveller community. The Employment Equality Act define harassment, other than sexual harassment, as any form of unwanted conduct relating to any of these nine discriminatory grounds. And for your employees, that means conduct which has the purpose or effect of violating a person's dignity and creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for that person. The words purpose or effect are important because essentially the intention of the perpetrator is irrelevant. It's, it's the effect of the behaviour on the person that's important. And that's a different test to the bullying test. This is a more subjective uh, test. Unwanted conduct can be acts, spoken words, requests, gestures, displaying written words, pictures, or other materials. So it, it can really cover a lot. Um, as an example, a homophobic remark or a joke would amount to harassment on the grounds of sexual orientation, or uh, sending an email with offensive graphics about Muslims would amount to harassment on the grounds of religion. But lots of forms of behaviour can constitute harassment. Some examples are, well, the more obvious physical harassment, any form of assault, but also pinching or unnecessary touching, verbal harassment such as jokes, comments, songs, or even greeting an employee with, with foul language, um, written harassment such as texts or, or emails, non-verbal harassment or intimidation such as gestures or um, threatening poses, or even frequently following somebody or standing too close to somebody on purpose, and visual displays then such as offensive posters or badges or even wearing clothes with offensive language on them. Harassment, interestingly, also extends to a situation where the person doesn't actually have one of the nine characteristics, but the harasser believes that they do. So if the harasser believes that the employee is gay, but they're not actually gay, and they treat them a certain way, then that can amount to harassment on the grounds of sexual orientation. Sexual harassment, then, is separate, and it's defined as any form of unwanted verbal non-verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature. The unwanted conduct can be acts, requests, spoken words, gestures, or displaying uh, written words, pictures, or the material. So it's similar to harassment in, in terms of what unwanted conduct can include. Again, I'm hoping Orla will give you lots of interesting examples, but some examples are, well, the obvious physical sexual harassment, such as kissing or groping, verbal sexual harassment, such as putting pressure on somebody for social contact, suggestive jokes or innuendo, and then nonverbal or, or visual sexual harassment, such as sexually suggestive pornographic, pornographic pictures or offensive calendars or Christmas cards with double meanings. That's one case we came across. I just want to also briefly mention victimization because <clears throat> we rarely see a complaint of bullying and harassment without also a reference to victimization. Employees tend to 
lump it down onto their complaints. And we often see employees arguing that they have been punished for bringing a complaint. Um, for example, their sick pay stopped afterwards or they didn't get promoted. But where employees often fall down is where they have to show a causal connection between bringing the complaint and the alleged punishment. So, for example, just because Joe is not promoted after he brings a bullying complaint does not necessarily mean he has been victimised for bringing the complaint. What Joe has to show in that scenario is that if he hadn't brought the complaint, he would have been promoted without question. So, but for the complaint, he would have been promoted. And that is very difficult to show. So, as I said, there are three codes of practice dealing with bullying and harassment in the workplace. While the codes aren't technically legally binding, um, they can be admitted as evidence in the Workplace Relations Commission and in the courts, and they can be read back to you. So you are expected to follow them. And in reality, your employees are going to Google these codes, so it is worth knowing what's in them, or at least when to refer to them. So the three codes are the Health and Safety Authority's Code of Practice on the Prevention and Resolution of Bullying at Work, the Industrial Relations Act Code of Practice detailing procedures for addressing bullying in the workplace. This was prepared by the old Labour Relations Commission. And the Employment Equality Act Code of Practice on Harassment. Now, there are similarities between the codes of practice, but they all approach bullying and harassment from three separate angles. So first of all, bullying as a health and safety hazard. Secondly, bullying as an industrial relations issue. And thirdly, harassment on one of the nine impugned grounds. The Labour Relations Commission's code, we'll call it, um, is the one you'll find on the Workplace Relations Commission's website. And it and the Health and Safety Authority code kind of sit together because they both deal with bullying. Um, they're, they're quite similar. They both set out a complaints procedure for, for addressing bullying. They both define bullying like we looked at earlier. And the, the Health and Safety Authority code actually stems from the LRC code, but it's, it's couched more in health and safety terms. And it is regarded as the most comprehensive and current statement of principle on anti-bullying in Ireland. So that's kind of your go-to code if you have a pure bullying complaint. It also outlines the procedures that your, your business should have for addressing complaints. It gives guidance to you, your employees and trade unions as to how to prevent a bullying culture from developing. And it also um, identifies who should be responsible for controlling and managing bullying in your workplace. <clears throat> the Employment Equality Act Code of Practice, on the other hand, focuses on giving practical guidance for you and your employees on how to deal with complaints of harassment and sexual harassment. Um, it defines harassment and sexual harassment. It gives examples of unwelcome conduct, um, like I said out there. And again, it goes through a complaints procedure. Now, of course, there are common themes in all three codes in that they all aim to achieve natural justice and fair procedures. They all provide for an informal process and the possibility of resolving a complaint at an early stage. They allow for the right to be represented throughout the complaints process. Um, they all agree that due regard must be given to the rights of the accused. Remember that a complaint is just an allegation unless and until the facts have been properly established. And a complaints process can be very stressful for an accused, regardless of whether or not they're actually innocent, and particularly if they're going to be suspended. We have seen cases where the accused has brought counterclaims of stress 
uh, for how they've been treated throughout the complaints process and they've won. So you do really need to be mindful of striking a balance between the rights of the complainant but also the rights of the accused. Finally then, all the codes agree that you have to take appropriate steps in investigating and dealing with complaints of bullying and harassment. And that basically means having a proper complaints procedure in place. <clears throat> now you all know how important it is to have a procedure in place, and yet research that was done not too long ago in 2015 showed that more than half of employers don't have the proper procedures in place, or if they do, they're not using them properly. It can be a defence to a claim of bullying and harassment to show that you have taken reasonable steps to prevent the conduct from occurring. And as I said, that basically means having a proper procedure in place. And it's not good enough to just have the policy. I know we sound like a broken record, but you have to make sure you actually communicate it to your employees, train them on it, make sure they're, they're familiar with it. Um, now, all three of the codes set out their own complaints procedure. So which one should you be following? It's fine if you have to deal with a complaint of bullying or harassment, because it's fairly clear which code you'll have to follow. The problem arises when you have a complaint of bullying and harassment, which, let's be honest, is, is nearly always the case. Um, as Orla says, bullying and harassment is a bit like gin and tonic. The two go hand in hand. You rarely see one without the other. And obviously, the practical thing is to have one complaints procedure for dealing with bullying and harassment. That's what we have in Mason, Hayes and Curran. I'm sure that's what most of you have here, and that's absolutely fine. But ideally, the procedure should be incorporating the key elements of all three codes. So the key steps that your complaints procedure should follow are, first of all, you should agree the terms of reference before you start down the procedure. So you should agree with everybody what steps you're going to follow and who's going to see what. Um, have a clear informal procedure in place, although I'm not going to get into what that looks like today. When it comes to the formal process, ideally this is how we think it should look, but it'll depend on your own policy, it'll depend on the investigation itself. Um, so we'll say, for example, that Orla makes a complaint of bullying and harassment against Juror, for example. Orla has to formally put the complaint in writing to Melanie or to another member of management. Orla can't expect Melanie to deal with the complaint if it's not in writing. We're in the formal process here. It's going to be very difficult to investigate the complaint if, if it's not in writing. The complaint has to give concrete examples of the alleged bullying and harassment, the dates of any incidents, and also details of witnesses where possible. Juror has to be told that a complaint has been brought against him, and he has to be given a copy of Orla's written complaint. A copy of the complaints procedure is also given to both Juror and Orla at this stage. <clears throat> Next, an independent uh, designated person is appointed to carry out an investigation into Orla's complaint. Now, this can be an agreed external third party if you want, um, but whoever it is, make sure that the investigator has the proper training and experience. Don't use it as an experiment to test out different investigators. So the investigator has to, has to agree a couple of things with both Orla and Jura at the outset. First of all, the terms of reference of the investigation. Secondly, the scope of the investigation. So what will the investigator actually be looking at? And thirdly, the likely timescale for completing the investigation. Now, Jura can be suspended at this point if there is good reason for suspending him on, on full pay, we'd say. Um, if you are going to suspend somebody, 
you need to make sure you have clear and proper reasons for suspending them. You need to make sure the person who's doing the suspending will stand over those reasons. And you need to make sure that the reasons are fully explained to to the person who's being suspended. They need to fully understand why they're being suspended. And in this scenario, it might be that the complaints are particularly serious or there are a number of witnesses who need to be interviewed and it would just be simpler for juror not to be around for that. So the investigator meets Orla and the witnesses individually to establish the facts around the complaint. The witnesses should agree their statements with the investigator so that there's no doubt later on as to what they actually said. Obviously, if there are no witnesses, it makes the investigator's job much harder because it's effectively a, a he, said, he said, she said investigation. Uh, likewise, if you have witnesses who aren't willing to give a statement, there's not a whole lot you can do. You can't force somebody to give a statement. But if you do have witnesses who are willing to cooperate, um, the investigator should take their statements and give a copy of these statements to juror. So he's given a chance to look at them, to respond before he actually meets with the investigator. Both Orla and Jur have the right to be represented throughout the complaints process. Now, if one of them turns around and says they want to bring um, a legal, an external solicitor to, to the meeting, even though our policy says you can bring a colleague, I don't think it's worth kicking up a fuss over that. Um, that said, you should have the right to refuse the person's chosen representative in certain circumstances. Once the investigation is finished, the investigator presents a copy of the written report to management. The investigation report is fact-finding only. That's really important. Um, it shouldn't recommend any sanctions or courses of action. It should simply uphold the complaint or not. Both Orla and Jur are given a copy of the investigation report before it's given to management um, and before management decides on any course of action. So Orlinger can comment on the report. Um, they're also given a copy of the witness statements at this stage, but remember, Jur has already seen these. If it's decided that the complaint is well-founded, um, management will meet formally with Jur to determine an appropriate course of action. That might include counselling or monitoring him or, or mediation or obviously disciplinary action uh, if necessary. If it's decided that the complaint is not well-founded, management will meet with Orla to determine an appropriate course of action, and that might be a counselling session with Juror or a mediation session with him, or if a complaint of bullying is upheld, you might need to look at how to eliminate exposure to the bullying in the future, uh, and that might require reassigning or, or reorganising work on the team. Both Orla and Juror can appeal the findings of, of the report to a more senior member of management who hasn't been involved at an earlier stage. The appeal has to be in writing and has to set out clearly the reasons for the appeal. When it's heard, it'll be heard on those points only. It won't be a full rehearing of the full complaint. The main pitfall of the process is nearly always the investigator. Investigators all too often stray outside their terms of reference or they don't understand the scope of their investigation or they don't talk to the proper people, or they recommend sanctions where they shouldn't. It's vital that you appoint a good investigator who you can trust to do a good job and who will stand over their findings and who will stay within the scope of their investigation. As I said, if you need to go
go outside your organisation to get somebody externally. But there's every chance that the investigation report will be scrutinised down the line, so you need to make sure that you get it right. When it comes to the investigation report itself, there are mixed views as to whether either Orla or Jur or both of them should get to see a draft of the report before it's actually given to management, before it's finalised. There's also a question over whether Orla should get to see the witness statements before the report is finalised. Remember, Jur has to see them. The code says he has to see them beforehand. Now, obviously, if Orla was to make a data access request, she'd get them anyway. But these are the kind of questions that the codes of practice don't answer. And we spent over two hours last week debating the issues amongst ourselves, and we just couldn't agree. But what we did agree was that you have to be flexible. There is no one-size-fits-all investigation, as Melanie said. You have to be able to adapt an investigation depending on the facts, the seriousness of the allegation, and whether you're in the public or private sector. Obviously, the extent to which you can be flexible will depend on what your policy says. And this is why it can sometimes be easier if your policy isn't too prescriptive, because it gives you some leeway to, to be more flexible. Very quickly then, my top tips. Have a clear complaints procedure in place. Use it, follow it, make sure your employees are aware of it. Get the complaint in writing if you're under the formal process. Um, otherwise, it's going to be very difficult to investigate the complaint properly. Be wary of data access requests. Don't put anything in writing that you're not prepared to hand over to the complainant or the accused. And finally, appoint a good and reliable investigator who you can trust to do a good job and who's going to stay within the scope of their investigation. I'll hand you over to Orla now. Thanks. For the record, Jarrah and I got on in very, very well, <laughs> and the appeal wasn't upheld. Um, as Melanie said, um, I suppose the, the unique selling point of our top tips is that we focus on what's practical rather than what's legal. So I was, I was thinking about this last night, and what is the most practical conclusion I came to was I actually feel really sorry for employers in this context. It's I'd love to be able to stand here and tell you today that Everything on this list is inappropriate behaviour and everything on this list is, is appropriate behaviour, but I can't. It is a subjective topic. It very much in, um, is based on how I feel the treatment has impacted on me. We live in, whether rightly or wrongly, um, a politically correct world. As Melanie said, it's not an ideal world by any stretch. You work with employees, not robots. So the fact that one comment might be seen as absolutely fine to one employee, may have a detrimental impact on another employee. And that's very difficult for you to deal with as an employer. I suppose the Irish, traditionally, they're known as, you know, having the crack, we're up for the banter, it's all great fun, etc. But our workplaces now are full of, thankfully, multinationals. There is different nationalities, cultures, mindsets, and what is acceptable to one employee may not be acceptable to another. And there is, in reality, a very fine line between banter and bullying. Um, some comments are entirely innocent and others might, might take offence to them. So in terms of a practical tip, as Avril said, absolutely you have to have a policy in place. I would also recommend induction training the minute the employee goes into the workplace. And if you can, I would recommend refresher training every year or two years 
just to make sure that everybody knows what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. Because the reality is you cannot police your workforce and ensure that every single comment that's made is not going to somehow offend somebody else. So what happens when it all goes wrong? And it does go wrong. There are a number of avenues of redress under both statute and under common law. And there are a number of claims an employee can bring. Um, four potential avenues are, the first one is the Industrial Relations Acts. And this is probably the piece of legislation with the least teeth because it can effectively be ignored by you as an employer. You don't need to attend a hearing. You don't need to, be need to agree to be bound by the decision and the decision isn't enforceable against you. As you know, employees can bring a complaint for a trade dispute under the Industrial Relations Act, and that's effectively any term and condition at all that they have a concern with in relation to their employment. Most traditionally, in, in the bullying sphere, um, the Industrial Relations Acts tend to focus on procedural issues or, uh, you know, fairness in, in, adapt, in a, a disciplinary process or something along those lines. The, the WRC tend to say, look, OK, maybe we'll recommend mediation or we'll suggest you bring in an independent investigator or maybe you shouldn't have given that warning. Things like that. They're more procedural issues rather than the, the strict bullying per se. Probably the most common one that you have come across on your desks, and, and certainly I have come across, is a complaint under the Employment Equality Acts for harassment, sexual harassment or victimisation. As Avril said, we have yet to come across a claim form where the employee hasn't ticked victimisation. Victimisation does not mean that I am a victim. There is a very specific statutory definition of victimisation, which basically means that you've been penalised for assisting and bringing a complaint or you've been a witness in a complaint or you've brought a complaint. And, and that one rarely wins out. It's more the harassment and the sexual harassment um, claims that, that we, we tend to see more often. And your exposure under the Employment Equality Act is up to two years gross remuneration per claim. Um, again, I can't give you a list of what is absolutely going to be considered harassment or what is not going to be considered harassment, but I will give you some examples. Um, you might all remember a few years ago, uh, Robbie Williams' wife was apparently walking around her house naked asking her staff what their sexual preferences were. That is not appropriate in the workplace, for the avoidance of any doubt. Um, that claim was withdrawn and presumably settled. Um, another claim that you might have heard of, and, and this is in the States, and the, the award was $3.5 million, so unlikely to come anywhere near um, the, uh, the uh, WRC. But um, an employee brought a claim against one of the largest law firms in the world where there was a number of issues, but one of them was that one colleague thought it was appropriate to put M&Ms down the blouse of a female colleague and then try and go get them. Again, not appropriate in the workplace. Uh, it is never appropriate to tell your employees that you're going to bring in the vet to neuter them so you can control the maternity leave. Uh, it is never appropriate to, to text your employees who are suffering from swine flu with oink, oink, LOL. <laughs> Again, and this one I thought was unusual. It is not appropriate to pretend you have Tourette's and consistently swear at your staff. None of those are appropriate. They are harassment, and that will get you into trouble. Unfair dismissal acts. In the context of a bullying claim, this is probably a constructive dismissal claim. So you, the employee has been bullied, the, uh, the, the complaint hasn't been upheld or has been upheld or whatever, to such an extent that the employee walks out the door. 
Your exposure, again, is up to two years gross remuneration or reinstatement or re-engagement. Um, I found one case on this where the employee was awarded €11,000. The employee had made a complaint but hadn't actually exhausted the internal procedures, which is usually the threshold for, um, for bringing a successful complaint of constructive dismissal. But in this case, because the employee had brought an informal complaint, the company had investigated it, but never went back to the employee to tell them the outcome of it. The employee quite naturally thought, okay, they're just accepting the behaviour, they may or may not agree with me, and they're just sweeping it under the carpet. That obviously had the impact that the next offence, whether it was a big issue or a small issue, was likely going to be the straw that broke the camel's back, and indeed it was. He walked out the door, and the, the EAT found that he was actually right in walking out the door, that it was justified, and they awarded him some compensation. Lastly is the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act. It's not one that we particularly see a huge amount of claims under, but there is a provision in it whereby you, if you penalise an employee for bringing a complaint around health and safety, whether that's demotion, dismissal, transfer of their duties, etc., um, you, you, you could have an award against you. Um, as I said, they're relatively rare. The exposure under the Act is actually unlimited, but it must be just and equitable in the circumstances. But the reality is claims um, are rare and any awards are relatively low. So there were the statutory uh, claims. There is also a potential redress available at common law. And this basically means that the employee is going to seek damages for an injury that they have suffered, and a psychiatric injury is what we're talking about here in relation to bullying, um, as a result of bullying in the workplace. And these are the types of things that you see in pleadings, i.e. negligence, breach of duty, breach of contract, whether that's an implied term or whether it's an express term, oppressive or unreasonable behaviour, etc. So there are three key elements to, that an employer must be able to show, sorry, an employee must be able to show in order to have a potential cause of action. The first is that there must be a recognisable psychiatric injury. And it must be more than just the ordinary occupational stress. Every job is stressful. We all accept that. Um, so you must, there, it can't simply be a GP saying it's work-related stress. There must be somebody, a, you know, a clinical psychiatrist who has said, yes, there is a recognisable legal harm here that you have suffered. Um, one case where an individual brought a claim to the High Court and said that he had suffered stress and it was a psychiatric injury, where the employee had in error, sorry, the employer had in error told the employee that he had been successful in a promotion, and actually it turned out that he told the wrong employee, completely by accident, genuine mistake, and um, the employee was upset, disappointed, went out on sick leave for six months, and then brought a claim, and the High Court, quite rightly in my opinion, said yes, it is upsetting, it was disappointing, uh, you were humiliated but that is not a recognisable psychiatric injury. So there is a fairly high standard to get to. Um, if you have the injury, then you need to be able to prove that the injury was related to your treatment in the workplace. That is an objective test. You need to look at both the conduct of the employer and the employee, and you also need to be able to look at the employee personally and whether that employee might be suffering you know, from any other stresses outside of the workplace. Um, in a case recently which was taken against uh, a law firm, the employee said that she was bullied and she suffered a psychiatric injury and she was found to have been bullied and the, and the High Court upheld her claim, but they also reduced the award by 20% because the employee didn't actually disclose to the, the doctor that she was suffering from other elements of stress. 
So they did say that, you know, the entire injury was not caused directly by the employer. And then, is the injury reasonably foreseeable in all the circumstances? And there are a number of things that you need to look at here. Firstly, employers are entitled to assume that the employee can do the job. That, that is a fair assumption. But if you suddenly start getting in work-related stress certificates, which I'm sure you've all got at some stage or another, if the individual you know, says that they're going out on absences which are prolonged, unusual for their character, maybe it's a case that you know, there's excessive workload, the hours are very long, etc. You need to be mindful of all these things. Um, if, for example, Jer, I brought my claim of bullying against Jer and it was upheld, and Jer was bullying me, and then Melanie still had me reporting to Jer every single day, if I suffered any psychiatric injury as a result of that, well, then it's reasonably foreseeable. So I think an employer would be held liable in those circumstances. So I'm going to go through some, just two cases now, um, which have come before the, the, the High Court recently enough. The first is Quigley. Um, and the reason I'm going to talk about this case is that even though there may be an injury, and even though there may be bullying in the workplace, and remember, as an employer, you're obviously vicariously liable for the acts of your employees, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is enough to expose you under, uh, under common law. So in the High Court, quickly, very briefly, was dismissed for reasons, performance reasons in 1999. He had said that there was a sustained campaign of bullying and harassment and victimisation against him. He brought an unfair dismissal claim to the EAT, and he also brought uh, a claim for damages to the High Court. His claim for, a, uh, for unfair dismissal was successful, and he was awarded re-engagement. The company appealed it, and the company's appeal was unsuccessful, and the order of re-engagement was confirmed. But between the time the Rights Commissioner made its decision and the EAT made its decision, the company actually ceased trading which had the effect that re-engagement was obviously not available and the employee's job was redundant. So at the same time, um, the, the, uh, sorry, at the same time as that was happening, the High Court case was going on as well. And the High Court said, yes, there was bullying, absolutely. Yes, there was a psychiatric injury. And yes, there was a connection between the two. And they awarded 76,000 euro. That was appealed to the Supreme Court on two grounds, and the two grounds are there in red. So one, the bullying didn't occur, and there was no link between the bullying and the depression suffered. The, the Supreme Court rejected the ground that the bullying didn't occur. They said, absolutely, it did occur. There was sufficient evidence. However, they said that there was no link between the bullying and the injury actually suffered, because it was only when they looked at the medical evidence that only at the time where the employee's job had been made redundant so between you know when the company ceased trading did the employee actually realize okay i'm never going to get my job back now that's when the stress happened that's when the anxiety happened that's when he went to the doctor so the supreme court said no there was no link between the treatment that he suffered before the dismissal and the injury that he actually sustained so they dismissed the case um the next case that I'm going to talk about is uh, the Roughly and Board of Management versus St Anne's School. Um, you probably have all come across this case. It's one of the more high-profile um, cases. I'm, it's been to the High Court, the Court of Appeal, and it's actually been to the Supreme Court as well, but we don't have the Supreme Court decision yet. 
This is important for all of you because it deals with uh, the impact of disciplinary procedures and whether a botched disciplinary procedure can result in a psychiatric injury for which you were liable. And we all know that there are very few disciplinary procedures which are perfect, so most of them are botched to some extent. So in this case, and I'm not going to go through it in the facts in huge detail, but Miss Ruffley was a special needs assistant in a school which, uh, who, where the pupils were suffering from either intellectual or physical disabilities. She had been there for 11 years before the incident happened, and she had never had any issue whatsoever. Perfect employee. Um, on the day in question, she, had, she was teaching a, a, a pupil a programme in a sensory room, and she locked the door from the inside. Now, apparently, that was acceptable behaviour. Nobody had ever told her not to do it. Nobody had actually ever told her to do it either. So that's very important. But every SNA, according to her, was doing it. It was just acceptable behaviour. Some of the reasons that she said it was, it's a sensory room, we don't want any interruptions. Um, and likewise, some of the, the, the pupils were, were runners, so they could actually escape if they wanted to. So that's why they locked the door. So on the day in question, the door was locked and the principal, Miss Dempsey, came to come into the room and found that the door was locked and she didn't agree with this. She was actually thinking, look, this is a health and safety issue. Um, and called Miss Ruffley to a meeting later on that day, basically asked her to explain what had happened. And Miss Ruffley did. She said, look, this has always happened. I've never been told to do it. I've never been told not to do it. Been here 11 years. We always do it and nobody has an issue with it. Um, Miss Ruffley then was, was, there's a bit of, con, I suppose, contradicting evidence as to what happened next, but let's just say in the next few weeks there was another allegation that Miss Ruffley had ref incorrectly completed a form. So between those two issues, Miss Dempsey decided, I'm actually going to go to the Board of Management with this and I'm going to recommend disciplinary action. Um, ultimately, without being called to an investigation or a disciplinary hearing, she was issued with the final written warning. She appeals the final written warning, and it is interesting that in the appeal letter, she never mentions the words bullying or harassment. The appeal was heard by the same people that issued the warning, and the appeal wasn't upheld. The High Court absolutely went through the school, obviously didn't like their evidence whatsoever, to such an extent that He's, the judge said, it is hard to understand how an educated, sophisticated person such as Miss Dempsey, who was the principal, could arrive at such conclusions without an element of bad faith. Now, that is a harsh comment for any judge to make. He said, the treatment throughout the disciplinary process was severe and inappropriate within the meaning of the definition of bullying in the workplace and awarded her €255,000. Um, naturally enough, the Board of Management appealed it to the Court of Appeal and they had two grounds of appeal. One, that there was no causal link between the behaviour and the illness, and that failed. They said, absolutely, the, the behaviour that was carried out and the injury that she suffered were linked. But they also said that the, the bullying didn't occur, that it was simply a, a flawed disciplinary process. And that was actually successful. And these are some of the grounds that the Court of Appeal said. The mere fact that a manager puts an allegation to an employee doesn't and can't mean that I'm bullying them. To say that I go through a disciplinary process by means of an investigation, a disciplinary process and an appeal cannot be deemed to be repeated inappropriate behaviour for the purposes of the definition of bullying. They accepted that Miss Dempsey's conclusions were bizarre, 
They accepted that the process was excessive, mistaken, exaggerated, and contrary to fair procedures, so a complete disaster. But that it was seemed entirely genuine. So it was the health and safety of the child that they were concerned about from the very beginning. And an interesting comment, which is actually one of the subjects of the, the Supreme Court appeal, is that communications not published or events not witnessed cannot be considered to undermine a person's dignity. Now, I'm not too sure I entirely agree with that, so it would be interesting to see what the Supreme Court say on it. So, in summary, they said that there wasn't bullying in this case because the motive was genuine. They said, substantive mitigation is not a full defence. So, just because every SNA did this, it doesn't actually mean that it was right. So, the disciplinary process was honestly pursued. There was no sustained malicious campaign to humiliate her. And quite thankfully, I think for most employers, they said a botched disciplinary process is not a case of repeated offensive behaviour intended to destroy a plaintiff's dignity at work. And that the definition of bullying in this case was stretched beyond breaking point to fit the case. So they seemed to take maybe a more practical view, whereas the High Court absolutely didn't accept the evidence of the school whatsoever. Um, the case has been appealed to the Supreme Court and these are the two grounds of appeal. So whether an unfairly carried out disciplinary process resulting in an injury is capable of being actionable on the basis that it amounts to workplace bullying, and this is the irrelevant part, without evidence of malicious intent on the part of the employer. So if there is evidence of malicious intent on the part of the employer, well then, that is obviously actionable. But if there isn't evidence of malicious intent, Arguably, it's not going to amount to bullying. And the Supreme Court haven't issued their decision on this yet, but we will obviously let you know when they do. And then the second question is whether or not um, behaviour witnessed by other persons in the workplace is capable of undermining the dignity of an employee. So if it happens in, in a room with my boss or my manager or whatever, like, can that be said to be bullying? Or because it isn't witnessed by somebody else, it doesn't mean it's not going to undermine my dignity. Again, I have my views on that, but I'm not a Supreme Court judge, so we'll wait and see what they say. This is something very important, obviously, for you, because you probably carry out disciplinary processes every day of the week. Um, but just be careful that, you know, whatever conclusions you come to, make sure they're, they're some way within the reasonable sphere and they're not entirely bizarre. I think it is interesting that both the Supreme, sorry, the, the Court of Appeal and the High Court said, you know, there was an element of bad faith, or it's difficult to see how she got to that conclusion without an element of bad faith. And the, the Court of Appeals said that her conclusions were bizarre. So I think you do need to be mindful that you do come within the reasonable sphere. We will let you know when we get the decision on this. So there you go. We have a few minutes for questions. We are approaching the question and answer session with some trepidation because <laughs> there isn't always a very clear answer or a right or wrong answer at this gentleman here. Yeah. Uh, Niall O'Neill Willis. Hi now. Uh, no. uh, actually, it's very enjoyable. Just on that last one, the, the, the lovely case, we'll try Mike 2. <laughs> Hello, line 2. Uh, Niall O'Neill Willis, Tars Watson. Uh, very, very entertaining. The last case, roughly, surely if the botched investigation process, surely she's going to succeed on the grounds of just basic negligence. 
I mean, if they made a mess of the investigation process, whether it was malicious or not, surely it's just negligence. Well, not, well, it wasn't bullying, and she's obviously claimed bullying. Um, I, I haven't seen the pleadings. I've only obviously read the decision. Um, but yes, they might have been negligent, but they weren't. it wasn't actually bullying in the first place, so that's what they're saying. Whether or not she'll get damages elsewhere, she might for negligence generally. But I suppose we were focusing more on the bullying element today, um, and they just held that the, the behaviour wasn't actually bullying. Uh, so I don't know about the negligence side of things, sorry. Champa here. No. <laughs> um, Melanie, one of the issues I always have with complaints is employees bring a complaint and it's difficult for them to formulate what the basis of their complaint is. It's hard enough for us to work out the definitions, but for an employee, they don't like somebody, they're aggrieved, they're at the end of their tether, they've been the subject of excessive behaviour, and they find it difficult to formulate their complaint, and they bring a complaint and it's very difficult to understand exactly what the complaint is. So I guess my question is, how much do you help them formulate their complaint, mm. or do you investigate exactly what they complain about, even though it's half formulated? Mm. It's a really good question. Um, it's, it's almost like you're helping them formulate their yeah. And work, what works for one company isn't going to work for others because the same laws apply if you're Mason Hayes and Kern and you have 450 employees to if you're Flavors Coffee Shop across the road and you have three or four. Um, how the codes of practice? Correct me if I'm wrong, Avril. The codes of practice provide for a contact person, um, and it is kind of recommended practice for organisations to have somebody are a couple of people dependent on the size of the organization within the business who are there and are trained to help employees formulate their complaints. And if an organization isn't big enough to have a designated contact person, which is different to the designated person Avril talked about, this person is called a contact person in most procedures. And that person's role is to help an employee articulate the complaints. We all find it difficult. We're trained lawyers, so our training is to express things in words and to articulate issues, but that's not something that comes naturally to most people. So organizations, if, if they have the resources, um, and even if they don't, the obligation is to have a contact person whose, whose role it is to assist with that articulation. Um, and if there isn't a contact person, is there somebody in HR who's outside of the process or can somebody be allocated, ideally with training, but sometimes by the time you get a complaint, it's too late, but just to help articulate that. And then, depending on whether or not that happens or how, whether it happens successfully, the investigator's job is to extrapolate the core issues. And um, one of the things Avril said there is that investigators should have clear terms of reference. This is one of the things that we could debate for hours because if a complaint is clear enough, do you really need terms of reference? I've had investigators say to me, well, I'm not drafting the terms of reference and I've other investigators who think that you're interfering with their investigation if you try and draft terms of reference. 
but the terms of reference should effectively articulate what the issues are. So when you get the 45 pages, and sometimes it's a ring binder, and sometimes it's three ring binders, here's what the investigator believes are the core issues for investigation and the headings under which it the, the complaint will be investigated. And that's kind of the second protection, if you like, or the second wave. If there is a contact person or there isn't or it has failed, then the investigator's terms of reference, if there are terms of reference, and nothing in any of the codes of practice says there has to be terms of reference, but it is good practice for exactly your reason because it, it should extrapolate the individual issues of the complaint. But then you're into, and that's why there's no straight answer to all of this, you're into an investigation, go back to a complainant and saying, these are what I think your complaints are. And then the complainant going, oh, and actually, can I just add and can I add? And where does that stop? Because you have to go back to the accused then and go, well, by the way, they've expanded their complaint. Then that's something that the investigators perceive to have facilitated and it all just becomes a nightmare. Um, and and, and there, there is, these, these questions are so hard to answer because it's horses for courses, it's different every time. Um, but, but to go back, the, 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 the short answer is there should be a contact person whose role is to help articulate. And then the investigator's terms of reference should have a second stab at articulating or refining down the core issues. That's particularly important when there's three ring binders, um, which there often is. Um, and then attempts should be a, to expand the complaint later because that can happen again in the investigation meetings. That should be avoided at all costs, but that requires a strong investigator as well. And more often than not, the investigators will be somebody in your organisations. It isn't always, there isn't always a budget to bring somebody in external, and even when you bring somebody in external, they're not always great at what they do. And that's something that you have to watch too. Just because you're bringing in an external investigator doesn't mean you're getting quality product. Um, and we've seen vastly different investigation reports. And the best investigator in Dublin has just gone to work for Facebook, so she's got out the picture. So it's, it's something we struggle with as well. Does that answer your question, kind of? Thanks. There's an implied um, separation of powers in a lot of the jobs you, you put up there. Yes. In a small business where you have a contact person, an investigator, someone who's going to do a disciplinary, uh, those separate people are not going to be there in a small business. So is there a, a, a way consistent with the legislation for all this to happen in a small business? Um. I'm going to answer this one and then I'll pass the next one on to you. I, uh, yes, another good question. How do you do this when you're small? How do you do this when your flavour is coffee shop across the road and you have three people? Um, the obvious answer is to bring in external people, but that can be incredibly expensive. Investigations are expensive. Like they, you don't see 15 and 20,000 euros worth of investigators fees racking up very, very quickly. So the obvious answer is you bring in somebody external to, the, to do the investigation. Um, if that's not possible, many, not all, many small organizations have non-execs on the board who might be prepared to do something like this. Um, other organizations are part of small groupings like yours. 
um, or professional groupings like I don't know, the Irish Hotels Federation, and there might be a support system within those professional groupings, maybe not from the the organisations themselves, but with kind of with networks or where people from other organisations can come in and do investigations for companies or businesses in a similar situation to themselves so that support is important that brings with the data protection issues you need to be careful that there's no leakage around confidential information and the correct protections are put in place um dad completely agree yeah it's unfortunate yeah. it, and the same issue arises in a normal disciplinary procedure you have an investigator you have a disciplinary and you have an appeal how do you keep that separate when there's four people you know it, it is very difficult I think you would be given some leeway if you had a small organisation that came to it you know but when it comes to the investigator itself you probably do need to go There are lots of um, HR practitioners and lawyers who do this work um, with varying degrees of success. Um, and it's, I believe, difficult to find somebody who's good. Like I said, the, the person that we would have recommended has just gone to work for Facebook, so she's gone. Um, I've had terrible experiences with investigators. I had one guy who took over a year to do an investigation in a really toxic environment that should have been done very quickly um, to the point it was useless when we actually got his report. I had another guy have a nervous breakdown after the investigation or during the investigation which, which delayed it. I've had many, many of them sit in front of me and when I've said to them, well, what are you going to say when you're given evidence? And they go... Because it's never occurred to them that they might end up before a third party if it all goes pear shaped. I've had others who think that I should give them legal advice instead of them getting their own. I've had others who never dreamt of getting some professional indemnity insurance for themselves. So, um, Um, what criteria do we use? Well, barristers actually do it regularly enough, and I suppose because they have a legal background, they know what's to be expected in court. They can see the procedural errors. Like they sometimes they do very good reports because I suppose they've been at the other side and they know when they are drafting their report what's expected. Well, I so think we probably have a bias towards using solicitors or barristers. It's easier for you to transcribe. Well, I think they tend to get we, we're trained to be unemotional and unattached. We're trained to extract facts and produce reports and have to stand over them when we're challenged. Yeah. And we're also trained to be comfortable in a courtroom. Now, look, I've sat in the back of the courtroom waiting to be cross-examined by Michael McDowell. <laughs> um, it's not a pleasant place for anybody to be, but it's a place we're familiar with because we grew up in the courtroom. We grew up in the EAT. Um, so we tend to have a bias towards using people who are trained lawyers. Um, but not always, actually. Yeah. I hired somebody this week who's a HR practitioner. Mm. Um, and is there a format in terms of how the investigation should be structured that you would suggest? No, so because investigators... reference again, if yeah. you have terms of reference, and then it's a preference. Investigators will have their own way, and yeah. you can't interfere with that. So I was just going to say, um, we do a lot of... So I work at 
practice and so on. But um, we do a lot of fraud, uh, employment investigations as well, and then our partner acts as an expert witness. So it's there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, we've all probably been in situations where we've been down the canteen or we've been on a night out and we've heard kind of situations of bullying in the workplace or harassment and as HR practitioners, you know, sometimes you're put in an awkward position going, oh, should I follow up on this? Even though they haven't made a formal complaint or even, even if it's a grievance, they haven't placed a formal grievance to us. You know, what do we do in that situation? Do we kind of go to that person and kind of say, look, you know, you, you should, I've, I've heard this is going on, you should put in a formal complaint, or do you kind of sit and wait for it to, for them to do it? Or, you know, I'm sure we've all kind of come across situations like that where you hear things on the grapevine or they're told to you out of context of the formalities of it. Any thoughts? <laughs> One of the things we say consistently when we're standing up here is that policies and procedures are brilliant, but they're no good to man or beast when they're in somebody's drawer. Okay? So one of the things, and we do it here in Mason Hayes, our HR uh, practitioners here remind everybody regularly that we have policies and procedures that they're kept on our internet and that if anybody has any questions, um, they can go to Ruth or Mary or Elaine or Marion or one of the HR team. And that's something that we recommend organisations do all the time. Don't just have policies. Make sure they're living, breathing, they're up to date, and that everybody knows about them. So to your point, when you hear about something, sometimes that warrants going to the employee and saying, there is a mechanism for you to raise an issue if you want to. Because you can't force somebody. And other times, instead of going directly to the individual, it's a matter of doing a, an all Mason Hayes users email saying guys just to remind everybody we have these policies and procedures in place for people to make complaints because that's what's called for and you're better at making a call at what's appropriate in any given circumstances and sometimes it's appropriate to have a conversation and say look I've heard this I'm concerned about it do you want to do something about it because we're cynics right we see it when it goes wrong and to your example what happens if, if something terrible happens and then you get accused of, well, you knew this was going on. So-and-so told you. You knew about it. Didn't you know about it? And you go, oh, yes, I did. And what did you do about it? Nothing. So it's hard to get that balance right. And at least you can defend yourself if you've gone and said, well, I had a conversation. I reminded you where these were and you opted not to do anything about it. That's the best protection. And obviously then training on, on, on how to use the complaints procedure if people do have an issue. If you have an investigation ongoing and you realize that the investigator lacks a natural justice instinct and you're noticing that there's flaws, as the employer, it's an external investigation. So is there anything you can do? Should you interfere? Let me give that one to you, Ava. Not really. I mean, as you said, if you appoint an investigator, it's for them to, to do it, to do it how they, how they see it. I mean, if it all goes wrong, it's for them 
to defend it as well. They're going to have to be the ones to stand over the findings, and if they've done it wrong, well, it's, it's their responsibility. So what do you think? Yeah, I think to say to an investigator, that's it, stop it, fold up your tent, leave, and appoint somebody else is really nuclear. It might be appropriate, um, but it's a very, very nuclear thing to do. Are you more or less vicariously liable, though, for their actions? Because you'll end up paying out on it and not them, if it goes to a third party. I can't hear you, sorry. Are you more or less vicariously liable for their actions, though, because you'll end up paying out on it and not them, if it goes to a third party? Yeah. So you can tell them to stop and appoint somebody else, but it's a pretty nuclear thing to do. You want to be pretty sure. Thank you. And costly. Mm. Um, Mel, do you have to get the employee's permission before you go external, as in from a data protection point of view? Um, no. Right, so most of your employment contracts will have a data privacy clause in there, but retaining an advisor and, and as your agent to conduct an investigation, uh, so long as you have a confidentiality provision with the advisor, whether it's your lawyer or your investigator or somebody to give you advice on, any, on anything, um, shouldn't be a data protection issue. Okay, and if the employee says, I'm not happy with somebody externally or any either party yeah I mean that's an issue as well I'm not happy with that investigator here's three investigators I want you to use um where like where yeah, where's the impartiality when you're paying them you know. and, I, and, and I saw that yesterday actually I, I got a full appeal of an, the outcome of an investigation um and it was a guy on probation who hadn't performed, who'd been dismissed and subsequently made an allegation of bullying, which we decided as a matter of kind of good housekeeping to investigate, ended up with a 40-page report from an investigator, which I just thought was bonkers, um, and all kinds of recommendations, which were totally inappropriate and nothing to do with the investigator as far as I was concerned, but nevertheless remained in because it was her investigation. And, and now the big long email from the employee yesterday saying, well, that investigator wasn't impartial because she's on your payroll and she's doing what you tell her to do. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't deal with that. And most investigators, good investigators, will take the hump actually with any suggestion that you've interfered with their investigation. And in that case, actually, we'd asked her to take out the recommendations and she said no. So we'll happily be able to defend that. But who decides who the investigator is? My view is that an employer is entitled to decide who the investigator is, and so long as that investigator complies with principles of natural justice and does a thorough and impartial investigation, then that's fine. But you'll often get employer, employee representatives, whether that's lawyers or unions um, or friends, saying, well, that investigator has been involved with you guys for... 40 years, they're, you know, your their biggest client, they're always going to do what you say. Um, and that's something that you have to factor in. And sometimes it might be appropriate to suggest a panel of three investigators and agree on the identity of one. More often than not, it won't, but there will be cases when it will, particularly if something's very fractious. Yeah. And it depends on the level of the organisation. Somebody very senior who might have been the person who retained the investigator before, might have a personal relationship with them. There is no perfectly neat answer for this. I'm sorry for being greedy, but I have the mic. Consultants and contractors. 
they also have a yeah yeah absolutely they're also protected under the Employment Equality yeah. Acts and the Health and Safety Act safety workers yeah. as well as well, I'm conscious that it's seven minutes past nine and we always promise to try and get you out of here. If anybody has any questions, you are more than welcome to stay. We're here. I see Liam and Adele there. Um, uh, and then Sarah is here. So if anybody else has any questions, we're here. We'll answer them. Um, all I can say is the definitions of bullying, the definitions of harassment are not what people think they are. It's They're, they're different to what people think they are or perceive them to be. It's difficult enough for complaints to fall within the definitions. As, or, as employers, your obligation is to ensure that complaints are investigated honestly and fairly and with integrity. Your obligation then is to make sure that there is a report that is a fact-finding report and that something's done on foot of that report. We had an issue yesterday where the client had put the report into a drawer and nothing ever happened. Um, the report shouldn't prescribe what happens but you may need to consider mediation or training or coaching or counselling or a disciplinary issue. Um, but it's incumbent upon you to do something um, uh, with the outcome of the report. Um, and I think it's very evident from all of the questions and what we're saying today, there is no one size fits all. But the only thing that we do agree on is that these issues can become toxic and they can become toxic very, very quickly. So the worst thing you can do is do nothing. You have to deal with them. And EY will help if you need them to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for coming. We'll see you soon.